This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Welcome, everybody. I'm Henry Brady. I'm the dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy. It's really wonderful to be here tonight uh, with uh, Congressman Frank. Uh, let me just tell you a very little bit about him. There's a biography, that I think, in the program, and many of you, I'm sure almost all of you, I'm sure every one of you, in fact, knows him very well from uh, watching television and, and having him being interviewed and all the wonderful witticisms and bon mots that are the trademark of uh, Congressman Frank. Uh, he was born and raised in Bayonne. I wanted to see if anybody was from Bayonne, but nobody from Bayonne. Okay. Uh, New Jersey? Uh, <laughs> okay. Went to Harvard College and Harvard Law School. Uh, worked for Kevin White, mayor of Boston. Some of you may remember Kevin White, one of the, the mayors of the period when we, uh, when we actually worried about cities uh, and talked about cities and their well-being. Uh, was elected to the Massachusetts State House in 1972. I remember meeting Congressman Frank about 1974 or so in the State House in uh, Massachusetts on Beacon Hill. So... And I remember the person I was with who introduced me said, this guy's going places. He's incredible. Well, that was a good prediction. Uh, was uh, elected to the U.S. House in 1980, served from 1981 to 2013, um, and was uh, the chair of the House Financial Services Committee uh, from 2007 to 2011. And, of course, there he was the co-author of the Dodd-Frank Financial Services Act, which is an extraordinarily important piece of legislation. Um, he retired in 2012. Uh, the thing I most want to say about him is he was a hero in my household because my wife would watch television and I'd come home and she would report to me what Barney said that day. And it wasn't Barney the Purple Dinosaur, it was Barney Frank. And she just would write these things down. And I'd come home and she'd say, here's what he said today. Here's this incredibly wonderful way to describe what's going on in American politics. And I think one of the distinctive features of Congressman Frank is his ability uh, with a, a very nice phrase to encapsulate what's happening and to illuminate American politics to its core with those witticisms and bon mots. So we're really lucky to have him here today. I'm thrilled he's here. He's going to talk about an extraordinarily important topic, which has a lot to do with our future in terms of whether we'll have the budgetary capacity to do what we want to do. And the topic is reducing the military budget, necessary to improve our quality of life. I think he actually has an alternative title he'll tell you about that's even a little bit more juicy than the one I've just read. Let's welcome Congressman Barney Frank. Thank you, Dean. And uh, as I thought about how I wanted to present this, and uh, actually I've been thinking about trying to put down on paper a coherent version of uh, what I've been saying about cutting the military budget. And uh, uh, the, the, uh, I, I worked at Harvard under Professor Richard Neustadt, and he introduced me to the concept of uh, uh, decision-forcing events. And, and uh, the, for example, the fact that George Marshall 
was invited to give the commencement address at Harvard uh, after World War II. People argue had a uh, played a role in the timing of the Marshall Plan. <clears throat> I mean, it wasn't only because of that, but he did make his plan for the uh, post-war reconstruction of Europe <clears throat> public at that time. And so the, the need to give this a somewhat coherent lecture made me think about the structure of it. And I, um, I will give you the title that I will now be using for this uh, uh, topic, and, and I hope be able to uh, make clear what I mean about it, what I mean by it. But the title is, Tempt Us Not Into Leadership. And um, it has to do with America's role in the world. I begin with a, what I think is an indisputable assertion. Um, those of us who believe that we should be doing more together, which is what we call government, when there are things we want to do in society that we need to do jointly and cannot be done individually or by private uh, single entities, then we have to come through government. And many of us believe, I think a majority of the country believes, when the questions are posed properly, that we do not do enough in those instances where we can pool our resources to get things done. We have a problem with a quality of life that lags where it should be and could be if we did more collectively. Part of the problem is, and I think there's a vicious cycle, um, there are a large number of people in the country who traditionally have been in favor of government action who are now largely opposed to it. Uh, namely in their votes. They vote for people who are anti-government. I think we have a group of people, white men by and large, people without college degrees, people not at the high end of the uh, uh, economic scale, who in fact believe deeply that government could be doing things and are angry that it's not, in particular angry that the government has done so little to protect them against economic trends that have eroded their position. And so we get a vicious cycle. People are disappointed in the performance of government and express that by voting for people who hate government so that the performance gets worse and worse and they get angrier and angrier and that's where we are. Now I believe we need to break that cycle. I think we can break that cycle if we were able to expand various public programs. The great paradox we have is that much of what government does is in fact quite popular. Uh, government is very unpopular. We have uh, a whole that is smaller than the sum of the parts, but that constrains the parts. And if we could show people, if we could expand some of these things that respond to real needs, I think there would be a great deal of uh, uh, not just happiness with those specifics, but more support for the notion of, of, of our doing things together. I think we suffer in the U.S., right now from this anti-government philosophy that keeps us, as I said, from mo more effectively doing things that, that are in our interest uh, and that cannot be done except through the public cooperation. So I have been looking for ways to find revenue. Unfortunately, that very anger means you can't raise taxes. Um, and so my goal is to find revenue that we could use for what I believe are constructive purposes that, that have a, a dual benefit. They have real benefits to the society, and they help us defeat this anti-government 
attitude which makes things worse when we should be making them better. And uh, there are two. Uh, one would be to stop the criminal prosecution uh, of people who put things in their body that we disapprove of, even if they don't hurt anybody but themselves. I won't get into that in great detail now, or at all. I've said all I'm going to say about that. The major area is to reduce the military budget. I am very frustrated when I read about how we have the serious budget problem going forward in Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. Let's be very clear. Social Security and Medicare are the two most successful anti-poverty programs in the history of this country. They have substantially wiped out what used to be common, poverty for older people who were not rich. I'm very proud of that. I don't want to take it back. As to health care, I am all in favor of measures to control costs if we can do that effectively, but not by denying it to people. In fact, people talk about runaway Medicare. If you go back to the end of the Clinton administration, when there were actually some surpluses in the budget, and look at what's happened to the budget, the major increase in spending has not been in medical care, it has been in the military. Now, that was exacerbated by George Bush's contribution to economic theory, for which I do not think he will get a Nobel Prize, <laughs> namely that you could finance two wars with five tax cuts. We have not previously in this country cut taxes when we were engaged in the most expensive thing the government could do. But I want to go beyond just that. I believe that we can reduce the military budget of the United States by at least 20% below what it now is with no harm to any value that we seek to accomplish. Uh, the problem is too many people who talk about cutting the military budget don't want to take what I think is the necessary first step. In fairness to the military, yes, there's some inefficiency. Public sector work is inefficient. I believe we could do with more efficiencies in the Pentagon, although they are much harder to impose, particularly from the outside. Um, people talk in metaphors. I, I'm a great believer in free speech. But if I were not, I would not ban sexy stuff. I would ban metaphors from the use of public policy discussions. Um, one of those is, um, uh, well, one I would say, and I think we finally understand it's wrong. For a long time, people said, don't worry about inequality. Just push for growth because the rising tide will lift all boats. Uh, I don't like the metaphor. Uh, the economy is uh, not a tide. People are not boats. Um, uh, it just has nothing to do with reality. If you insist on staying with the metaphor, I guess the response is, yes, the rising tide may lift all boats, but if you are too poor to afford a boat, the rising tide will go up your nose. And that has, in fact, happened to a lot of people. Um, when it comes to efficiency, we have this metaphor that we're going to cut the fat. Well, yes, there is fat in all human activity and very often in government. The problem is that the fat is not gathered at the edges. It is deeply marbled. Cutting out marbled fat is very difficult. Yes, we can make some changes, but here is the fundamental point. If we, I believe that cutting the military budget is an essential prerequisite to doing anything more in many of the areas that we talk about. The environmental cleanups, public transportation, 
even private transportation, because we are now being told we don't have the money to fix the roads. Uh, Republicans don't want to extend that particular program, certainly not if it meant any increase in taxation. Uh, higher education, medical care, there, virtually everything we do in this country together to improve the quality of lives is at risk, and it is likelier going forward to be constrained than expanded, where I would think many of us believe it should be expanded. There is simply not room for the military budget as it is now projected, and any increase anywhere in any area of our domestic programs. Now, if I believe that the military budget was necessary uh, for one or another reason, that would be a dilemma. I think it is clear that the military budget is considerably in excess of any legitimate set of needs. In particular, and this is where my title comes in, as I analyze this, I think a major factor in holding the military budget up at this very high level is this notion that it is America's duty to lead in the world. I believe President Obama has done a number of very important things in the area, pulling back in Iraq and Afghanistan. I hope he can continue to resist some of that pressure. But I, I was... I decided to phrase it this way when I read him saying a couple of weeks ago, yes, we're going to be more careful, but America will continue to lead the world. Why? Where are we leading people? Who are we leading? And why is it important for us to be the leader? Why does anybody have to be the leader? Um, that is not isolationism, by the way. I, uh, I am in favor of sending military weapons to Ukraine. Uh, I think that's the one area where I agree with John McCain. And... Uh, uh, I have to say, people who rebuked him because he disagreed with Angela Merkel at a conference in Germany, saying you don't disagree with the chancellor in Germany. If she did not want people to disagree with her, she should not have held a conference on a very controversial subject. But uh, I'm distressed that we are not doing more in terms of pressure and moral intervention to protect democracy in Thailand. That is a great scandal that the Poorer people of Thailand succeeded over the past dozen years in twice or three times winning elections in which a prime minister was elected, a president was elected who favored them and ultimately was overthrown by the military, supported by the wealthy, who didn't want those things to happen. But the level of military intervention is excessive. And so then the question is, okay, we must first redefine what the mission is before we can decide this. You cannot talk about cutting the budget for the military without first deciding what it is are our objectives that have to be accomplished for the military. The first point I believe very strongly is that we have been persuaded significantly to exaggerate the military requirements of protecting our national security. And it happened consciously and recently America had not much of a military before World War II. To respond to the threat of the Nazis and then of the communists, the communists were a real threat. Stalin was an evil man, heavily armed. We built up. We built up because we believed, I think too long the belief lasted in, in the latter case, but the view was that we had heavily armed people hostile to us, hostile to our values, who could conceivably threaten our continued existence as, as the nation we want to be. That ended in 1990 when the Soviet Union collapsed. And I think it's important to say that the collapse of the Soviet Union was transformational. I am no fan of Putin. 
Every day, I continue to be happy that my grandparents got the hell out of Russia. <laughs> but Putin under Russia is a place that is doing things that are disruptive in the world, but they do not amount to the kind of threat that the Soviet Union fully armed presented to us. They're a threat to Ukraine, they're a threat to Georgia. That's something we have to pay attention to. And by the way, it was George H.W. Bush who first recognized that. So if you look at the military spending, it began substantially to reduce under George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton because we no longer faced an existential threat to our existence. We had a higher military budget, but it was coming down substantially. One of the things that struck me is my good friend Leon Panetta, uh, recently when he was about to become defense secretary, he testified before the Senate that he was going to avoid the mistake we have made in the past. He said, we make this mistake after World War II, after Korea, after Vietnam, and after the end of the Cold War. We downsized the military unduly because the particular threat had ended. And, and Panetta specifically included that we cut the military by too much at the end of the Cold War. It did occur to me at the time that the end of the Cold War, when we were doing this, was essentially the beginning of the Clinton administration. And so one of the men who presided over this reduction in military spending was, of course, the budget director under Bill Clinton, who was Leon Panetta. And I did ask Leon why he felt that he had cut the military too sharply. Um, and as he was able to do, uh, because I didn't get to vote on his confirmation, he just ignored me. But um, <laughs> what happened was this. The military budget was on a significant downward trend after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then came 2001. And a group of people in America, led by Dick Cheney, with the support of neoconservatives and others, successfully managed to persuade America for a while that terrorists were the functional equivalent of the Nazis and the communists. That is, they succeeded in getting America's defenses built back up to the level to combat terrorism that we had to combat this existential threat. Let me make an aside. When I talk about reducing the military budget, I am not talking about anything that would change the status of America being by far the strongest military power in the world. And some of my friends have said, well, that sounds somewhat too xenophobic. Why, why does America have to be the strongest military power in the world? There is a difference between being the strongest military power in the world, a fact, and deciding that you're the world leader, which is a policy. And the answer is, I want us to remain the strong, strongest military power in the world because I don't like any of the alternatives. I mean, to be honest, if I thought it was possible for Denmark to be the strongest nation in the world, I would rest very easy. I would be fine if Denmark were, were, uh, were in charge. But as I look at the potential contenders, better us than anybody, uh, than anybody else. Um, but we do not have to be as much stronger than any conceivable combination of enemies by the same margin that we now are. Uh, and we were on a path towards a more reasonable level at the national security level, because the first question is, what do we need for our national security? So the first thing to say is that, yes, it is important for us to fight terrorism, but much of what we spend on our military is irrelevant to the fight against terrorism. Nuclear missile-carrying submarines 
are irrelevant to the fight against terrorism. I wish they weren't, because the terrorists don't have any, and we have a lot, and that would be the end of it. But we continue to spend a lot of money that is totally irrelevant. And let me be very clear, our frustration in confronting terrorism, our inability to succeed in what we were trying to do in Afghanistan, even worse in Iraq and elsewhere, has nothing to do with a lack of military power. And that's one of the questions I ask some of those I served with who say, oh, no, you're wrong. We have to increase the military, and we don't have enough military. I, I pose this question, and I have not had anybody answer it to, to my satisfaction to convince me I was wrong. I cannot think of a time since the Korean War when America's inability to succeed in some important foreign policy objective was caused by an insufficiency of American military power. We have more than enough weaponry and manpower and ability to win any kind of a war in any kind of conventional terms or even unconventional terms. Our problems since then have had to do with the political situation. I am very unhappy at what Putin is doing in Ukraine. No one I know thinks that the, that the response is for America to invade, no matter what kind of level of, of military we had. So that's the first point. We have greatly exaggerated what we need for national security. We can t I am very much disappointed by the plan to significantly increase spending that would be useful in winning a thermonuclear war. Uh, we still have three ways of dropping thermonuclear weapons on the Soviet Union. Uh, Russia today is not the Soviet Union. I have one. We have intercontinental ballistic missiles. We have nuclear submarines, and we have uh, the, the airplanes. I have, a, I think, a very modest proposal to the Pentagon. Those three ways you have for winning an all-out thermonuclear war, pick two. Give up one at the cost, uh, at the savings of billions of dollars. It would probably be the intercontinental ballistics missiles because they have no other function. Air power and sea power have other functions. So that's the first point. Um, you know, there were, uh, the argument that we have to expand, it was nowhere better laid out to me than in 2012 when Obama won and people who want to go even more in the military spending were afraid that Obama would not understand the need to spend more. And they were particularly worried. One of the most significant things about the election was that Obama carried Virginia, uh, which has, I think, probably the fifth largest navy in the world. Um, and uh, it does a lot of shipbuilding. And Romney tried to make that an issue in Virginia, and it didn't, it didn't resonate. And two uh, Air Force types, one who'd been an assistant secretary of the Air Force under Bush, another who worked for the Air Force Industries Association, um, wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal day after the election 2012, and I'm only slightly paraphrasing, they said, we are worried that Obama will not do what he needs to do to expand the Air Force. And they said, here's our problem. It is true that no American has been killed by hostile air power since 1953. It is also true that America have dominated the skies over every battlefield ever since. And because of that, because no American's been killed in 59 years, and because we have had total dominance in air power in any battle, some people do not understand the need to expand the Air Force. I, I confess to being one of them. <laughs> in fact, um, yeah, I think it is the case still that we, you know, the, 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 the second largest Air Force at this point to the Air Force is the Navy. The Chinese may be catching up. 
our Navy and our Air Force combined, we simply have, we could reduce that level of strategic weaponry and still have a significant margin of safety over any potential combination. So the, the, it is not national security. So then the question is, okay, but we, we need to maintain this power so that we can uh, go to the aid of beleaguered peoples across the world. Well, in some cases, I think that is right. I, I now believe that the, one of the biggest mistakes I made in Congress was voting against George H.W. Bush's Iraq intervention. It was well done. I was afraid they were going to go too far. I think it was a valid use of force to, to expel Saddam Hussein from Kuwait and then withdraw, and we left behind a coherent society, not one that I admire in terms of its values, but it is better off as an autonomous country than it would have been under Saddam. So, yeah, there are, but those are limited cases. One of the mistakes we make when we decide we're going to have to go in there and, and fix bad governance situations, and here's the problem. We have the best military in the history of the world, and they can do what a military can do. What a military can do is to stop bad things from happening. Our mistake is to think that the military can make good things happen, that can go into societies that are riven with all kinds of disputes, that have uh, a lack of coherence, uh, uh, a culture of great corruption. There's nothing the military can do about that, literally nothing. The military cannot go into Iraq or, or, or Afghanistan or anywhere else and improve the, the fundamental quality of that society. Bad guys are there. You can stop it. I think we're seeing that, by the way, in President Obama's policy in the Middle East. I think bombing the butchers who call themselves the Islamic State is morally justified and somewhat effective, despite what some of the people said, uh, some of the critics. But to go beyond that and to uh, reassert our responsibility for making Iraq a nice place to live, uh, or even worse, try to do that in Syria, I wish we could. We can't. And it's a great mistake to try. So that, that, that as I said, we're talking now beyond national security. Interestingly, many of those who want to increase military spending understand that they would have a hard time selling America on spending all the money we spend and denying ourselves other things if it were not clearly in our own interest. So there was this labored effort to make some of these things our national security interest. Uh, I've seen people critical of Obama because Assad has not been overthrown. I wish Assad was overthrown. I wish he was never thrown. I wish he was never in power. And he was a bad guy, and Saddam Hussein was a bad guy. And neither one of them has, in my judgment, been or is a threat to the security of the United States. The existence of, of badly governed places is not a threat to us. That doesn't mean we might not try in some ways to undermine them, but using our military force to overthrow bad governments elsewhere, particularly unless they're invading somebody else, I think is unjustified. It has not worked very well. Uh, look, even in Libya, when I cheered when we joined in the effort to overthrow Gaddafi, and I think we have to be honest and say Libya is worse off today. It is a terrible place to live. People don't have basic security. Uh, as bad as Gaddafi was, what followed him was worse. But in any case, and you have to divide this, it is not in America's national security interest. National security means we deal with physical threats to ourselves. There are other efforts to say, oh, no, but it's in America's interest. My favorite is the argument for a worldwide navy 
that is superior everywhere in every part of the world to anybody else in that area. And the argument is that we must keep open the sea lanes. You may have read this. That international trade is very important to our economy, and we must have a navy that can keep open the sea lanes. What? Who is a potential threat to the sea lanes? Uh, even, you know, the Somali pirates, but we had enough. And that, that's not much of a problem anymore. People finally got together and shot them, which was, I think, a perfectly reasonable thing to do. <laughs> Piracy is now growing some off the Nigerian coast because of all that disorganization, but that's, that's not a military problem. We could easily do that militarily. We figure out the right political situation. Um, so, so you have no serious issue uh, in, 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 in that regard. The argument, though, is that we must keep open the sea lanes, and therefore America needs a worldwide navy to keep open the sea lanes. Well, who could shut down the sea lanes? The only real contender looking forward is China. Yes, it is conceivable the Chinese, with their population, they could build a navy that could interfere with shipping uh, and trade. So then the question is, why would China which profits enormously from this trade, want to shut it down. I mean, do the pizza delivery, are we really worried that the pizza delivery people are going to tear up the streets? Because that's what it would be for China. I mean, who is threatening the sea lanes? What possible, I mean, if anything, the Chinese need to keep those sea lanes open more than we do. They make hundreds of billions of dollars a year over those sea lanes. I mean, that, that is an invented argument that we have to keep open the sea lanes. Yes, there are particular areas where some naval power is needed, clearly uh, in, in the area off Iran. I want to keep naval power in, in the Middle East. But keeping open the sea lanes in the Pacific is an invented need. The next argument is, well, we're going to be the defenders of, uh, of human rights with our military force. The problem is that that gets conflicted. In fact, the notion that we are going to provide leadership in the world, the need to form strategic alliances to enhance our world leadership role, works sometimes against human rights. I cannot think of a society that fails to meet the values that I think are important more than Saudi Arabia. Uh, we have been very protective of Saudi Arabia. They're our great allies. Now, I understand that. We, we believe if we're going to have leadership in the world, we need Saudi Arabia to help keep stability. But please don't tell me that that has anything to do with maintaining human rights. And that's historically been the case. During the Cold War, we were forced to ally with people who were uh, uh, clearly on the other side, sometimes worse than others. I remember Ronald Reagan had to be dragged kicking and screaming from the embrace of Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines. Uh, because he was the one who I remember, by the way, when we were told that if we did not continue to have naval bases in the Philippines, our national security would be at stake. And, of course, we don't have the bases and nobody notices uh, in terms of national security. So, so that argument about protecting human rights, clearly not true. As I, I try to go through the justifications for our maintaining a military budget far in excess of what we need for our legitimate national security interests, that is to protect ourselves and deal with threats, even with a considerable margin of safety. And it comes down to the assertion that it is America's duty to lead the world. Uh, that has two branches. One is the moral one. Uh, there is a very powerful political group, some of the neoconservatives, that America has a God-given mandate to lead the world. This is a very significant factor. 
My question is, I'm not a theologian or or a historian in this sense, but if in fact America has been given this mandate by God to to, to order the world, who was doing it before 1778? I mean, did did God suddenly decide that we needed a world leader? And it was in England, maybe it was. Um, uh, So obviously that's not the case. The other, but, but this is the argument. The only argument for maintaining the level of military activity we have and I, I, I have heard other arguments about national security. They are almost always bogus. Uh, in fact, there are people who believe in America, certainly many in the conservative side, but, but, but the rest of the country chimes in. This is required of us. It's a responsibility we have because we are the richest and most powerful nation, and therefore it is our responsibility to lead. Um, Lead is very much an intransitive verb. It does not have an object. Uh, people don't tell me who we're supposed to lead, where we're supposed to lead them, and why. So now the question is, should America be the leaders in the world? And that's why I say it's te- us not at the leadership. It feels good to be the world's leader. It feels good to many people for this to be the American century, for America to be the most powerful nation in the world and the most influential. Sometimes it gets kind of silly. We, we, I, I read in the New York Times that uh, people are worried because uh, China is uh, making more friends than we have in Africa by giving the Africans money. Uh, Good, good for the Chinese, good for the Africans. Uh, I don't understand why I should be unhappy because China is helping Africa economically. How's that gonna hurt us? Other than we're no longer the leading power uh, in in the world. And the, the fact is that maintaining leadership at the level people talk about, means maintaining military power capable of intervening almost anywhere in the world, anytime, in some cases, in simultaneous levels. That we maintain air power and sea power, that we can project, the phrase is that we have to project our power. That is, we have to be able to send American ships, American airplanes, into any trouble spot anywhere in the world. No. Um, in the first place, is the, the, to meet the moral argument, there are many problems in the world which we not only can't solve, but we exacerbate. Sending the American military into many of these places does no good, and in some cases may do some harm because of the resentments. Um, in fact, what it comes down to is that our role is supposed to be to maintain order in the world. People really aren't serious about the uh, enforcing human rights. Uh, you know, nobody's talking about going in and overthrowing Mugabe, who's one of the worst tyrants around. Um, If the North Koreans would agree not to have nuclear weapons, that lunatic could continue to misrule his country without people here paying too much attention to it. Um, It is this notion that America must preserve order in the world because disorder threatens America. And the answer is it doesn't. And I don't mean to be callous. I wish there wasn't disorder. I wish a lot of things. I wish I had the same energy today that I had 20 years ago. I wish I could eat more and not gain weight. But if I don't act on realism, I, don't, I get in trouble. This notion that, and you can read this, read the New York Times, read the other newspapers at times the one I read. Uh, the president is being criticized today because there is continued strife in Somalia and he is not stopping it. What is America doing about the difficulty in Sudan? What is America doing? Probably nothing that we can do and certainly nothing that we have to do in our own interest. Now, 
Yes, I am prepared, as I said, to intervene in some cases. But we greatly exaggerate the need in terms of our own self-defense and the efficacy of our intervention. I would like us to be active. I'm, I, I am the opposite of an isolationist. I'm very proud of doing what we can do. One of the things that we do not take sufficient pride in is the leadership role America played better than any other nation in the world in helping fight Ebola. You know, Liberia was kind of America's responsibility. Guinea, a former French colony, was France's. Sierra Leone, a former British colony, was Britain's. Of those three countries that went to the aid of those three African countries with Ebola, we did by far the best job, as did Liberia. And Ebola has been largely eradicated in Liberia much more effectively than in other countries. I want to do this sort of thing. And it may mean you're spending some money, but nothing is remotely as expensive as military activity. Nothing will cost us as much. So my basic argument is let's stop trying to be the leader of the world. It's very expensive. I don't understand what the goal is of leadership. And people tell me, what are we leading the world to? Are we leading it to more human rights? Are we leading it to a more orderly situation? Uh, neither of those are directly related to our own security. Yes, we will spend what we need to for our security with a margin. I appreciate that. And yes, we should have the capacity to help elsewhere. There's one last point about this, and that is one of the things we are now doing is enabling other wealthy nations in the world not to do anything on their own. In 1946, it was very reasonable for America to go to the defense of Western Europe, which was poverty-stricken after World War II. There was, I do not understand why we have troops in Western Europe. I do not understand what they're trying to do. It's not, I, do, I would like to see a NATO force in some of the countries that feel threatened by uh, Russia, and I would have some Americans could join there. But stationing a large number of troops on a continuing basis, uh, the European nations collectively, the NATO members, have a very large gross domestic product. Yet none of them has a significant military expenditure. I will go further, maybe a little more controversial. I, I talk about Europe in part. I am ready to forgive Germany and Japan. Yes, they behaved bestially uh, 70 years ago. As I look, I do not think there is anybody left in either country who was old enough at the time to have been culpable in their misdeeds. The fact that people continue to be distrust, and I also do not believe, if you look at history, that there is something in the genes of Germans and Japanese that make them particularly warlike. So I'm ready to let Germany and Japan rearm fully. And if they don't want to rearm fully, I don't want them to come look to me to protect them. Uh, I don't think they're in imminent danger of being attacked, but if they are worried, and this goes to China, people said, well, what about the aggression in China? Well, let the other Asian nations at least build up some. Uh, that's what we now do is we enable the rest of the world not to do things. Now, my view is that if the Europeans, we should w withdraw much. That doesn't mean we withdraw from NATO. It means that we ask the Europeans to do more. And if the Europeans really feel threatened, they will do more. My guess is they will not do more because they don't feel threatened. They're perfectly happy to have America spend all that money, but they don't spend it themselves because they don't feel any need to. Um, so let me summarize. I'll throw it open for questions. 
We were on the right path for reducing America's military establishment to being by far the largest in the world, but not by as much of a margin as it, has, as, as it is today. Once there was a collapse of the Soviet Union, and there was, for the first time in 50 years, no existential threat to the United States. After 9-11, people in the United States, building on the horror, justified horror and outrage about those murders, built the terrorist threat back up into almost the equal, certainly in, in, in uh, uh, quality but not quantity quite, to that of the Nazis and the communists. When that began to lag, by the way, providentially, not because they wanted it, there's no conspiracy theory, but the Islamic State gave a temporary boost by their being so horrible. That's faded. The American people, even with their horror at ISIS, are not in favor of sending ground troops in. I'll make this prediction. The Republican Congress will not vote to authorize ground troops into the uh, Middle East because they understand the public doesn't like it and they want the president to do it. Continuation of the long-running play in America where people in Congress criticize the president in foreign policy for acting unilaterally and then militantly duck any effort to uh, say anything. They would rather just be able to criticize him. But the fact is that we continue to be in a situation where there's no existential threat. The argument that we have to uh, exert leadership for, for human rights or to preserve order fails empirically. It doesn't work, certainly not using our military. Limited cases, country A invades country B, country B is a stable place. Yes, we try to help. In that category, I would put sending arms to Ukraine. But in fact, I believe the major reason we are being told that we have to keep spending at this level is that America has bought into the notion that it behooves us to lead the world. And that has to be examined. And I think the answer is there is no reason for us to take on this role of leadership of the world. We can defend ourselves. We can be part of coalitions that help other people. We can go to the aid of people who are particularly threatened. But worldwide leadership, which entails having the power to go anywhere, anytime, anyplace with superior force, is an enormous waste of money to no particular purpose. And I will go back to the, the other point. People want to do that. At least they ought to understand the opportunity cost. There is no way, given the current level of attitude towards government in America, given the fact that there is no remote chance in the future of raising revenue, and it is, of course, particularly hypocritical I have, Every time I pick up the paper, John McCain and Lindsey Graham want to invade another country, uh, but they, they also insist that we reduce the deficit and not raise taxes. If you, in fact, tell me that there is going to be no reduction in the military budget, that the trend line is going to go forward, then I fear for Medicare. I, I fear for maintaining Social Security. We're told we've got to put some limits on the cost of living. I don't know if you've focused on that, but what people are talking about is telling mostly elderly women, some elderly men, who live not far from here, that the $2,000 a month they get for Social Security is enough and that they will not get any cost of living increase going forward. Uh, that's morally unacceptable, uh, so we can keep open the shipping lanes that no one is trying to close. And, um, but that's the, 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 that is the price of this. The price of anything like the current level of military spending is not only no increase in anything we try to do domestically, but probably a decrease. On the other hand, if we could make a, you don't do it right away, there were weapon systems that we're building that I think are unnecessary. But here's the problem. 
It's very hard to stop a weapon system once it's being built because people are out there getting paid for it. So you don't try to do that. It doesn't work. But you don't build new ones. There are a lot of new ones you don't have to build. We can cut back on that. We can withdraw our troop presence in most of the rest of the world. Yeah, I want to keep some people in, in the Middle East and the Navy. But we can withdraw much of what we have done worldwide. We can substantially reduce. If we do not substantially reduce the military budget, not all at once, as far as people in the military are concerned, I would not lay off any of them. We made a contract with these young men and women. They should all be allowed to serve out their current enlistments. But, you know, they, there's an average six-year turnover in much of this. Within a few years, you, attrition brings you down if you don't replace those levels. If we don't do that, um, then you are going to see a continued erosion of domestic efforts. On the other hand, if we are able to bring it down and then begin to do more for working-class people with higher education, not just free community college, good idea, but dealing with the very serious problem of student debt that burdens people beyond what they can. We should not be cutting back on Medicare. We should be expanding it. Single-payer system works very well. We came very close during the health care debate. Joe Lieberman, for some reason, decided to turn on us of reducing the Medicare age down to 55. I like a single-payer system. My plan, by the way, is that what we do is there used to be what was called the oil spot theory of development, that you went into countries with troubles and you did something good here and something good there, and they would sort of link up. It never worked there, but I think it could work with medical care. We reduce the age for Medicare. We increase the children's health plan. We take all these categorical things and increase them, and pretty soon everybody except some 47-year-olds will be covered <laughs> by, by uh, this very efficient single-payer system. Um, all those things we can do, and here's a, they, they have a double benefit. If we increase the money that we give to local governments so they can provide an even better level of service without raising their local taxes, if we improve education, if we rescue public higher education from the terrible budget trends that are, that are attacking them now by providing funding for students but also funding for the institutions, if we, you know, we have the Superfund site, we have terrible, dangerous environmental hazards that will take something like 30 years to clean up at the current rate. If we expanded our transit system, there are a number of things we can do. People would not only benefit from them, it begins to turn around this attitude that government is terrible. And I know they, they, there is now going to be a serious effort on the part of the administration, not just to talk about excessive inequality, excessive inequality. Of course, you need to have inequality to make our system work, and, and it's in, in, in appropriate amounts, it's very important. But excessive inequality, there are programs that can reduce excessive inequality, short-term in terms of wages, longer-term in terms of education and other programs, expanding those programs that hire people, that give good jobs to people, partly through the public sector. They all cost money. So this is the choice. Either we make a substantial reduction in the military budget or forget about trying to improve the quality of life through any expansion of government activity and accept the fact that we will be condemned to an indefinite period where people don't like government and then vote for people who are against the government, and so it gets worse and worse. Uh, on the other hand, if we were to substantially reduce the military budget, I guarantee you there will be no reduction in America's national security, nor will there be any substantial reduction in our ability to do good things in the world, because much of the spending, I believe, has been either useless or, in some cases, uh, uh, done more harm than good. That's the choice. I think the American people are ready for this, and I think people in Congress understand that. Um, that is why, to close, 
you hear all these arguments, the argument for leadership, the argument for intervention. People understand, I believe, that you're not going to get broad public support for things unless you can show that they're in America's interest. You've got to scare people. That's why there was this great exaggeration of the extent to which terrorists threatened us. Yeah, there, there was no exaggeration of how bad they are. They're terrible people. But there was a great exaggeration of the extent to which they threatened America. You know, just look at what hasn't happened since 2001. Uh, go back to the projections of what we faced. Oh, it's probably because we spent money to try and protect ourselves. But it's also because, you know, one of the things that struck me is it is harder to get people to blow themselves up than people think. I mean, one of the reasons we haven't seen as many suicide bombers is that if you notice, it's particularly hard, apparently, to get people who are older than 16 to blow themselves up. I mean, I, I'm very glad of that, but we haven't seen that proliferation. It's especially hard to get people uh, to go 3,000 miles and blow themselves up. Um, at any rate, that doesn't mean we relax our guard. It just is not as expensive as people said it was. But they try to, there is this view that it is America's, America's greatness depends on our being leadership. Let me, let me quote some people. Our greatness depends on our being leaders in the world. I have no idea what that means. To me, greatness would be a much better environment. It would be much less poverty, much less inequality, better educated children, less racism, not just here, but we could do that like help fight Ebola and help fight other things, spend some money in the rest of the world in those constructive ways. I think my colleagues, my former colleagues, understand that presented with that choice, clearly the American people would choose not to spend the money unnecessarily. And they therefore invent national security arguments and national interest arguments that are really just a justification for our being this amorphous leader in the world because it feels better. And uh, uh, that is, I said, the temptation I hope we can resist. Thank you. Please come and join me. We'll have some questions from the audience. You might want to get a bottle of water. Well, thanks for that rousing and interesting talk. Uh, let me start with this. Um, you seem to rule out a concern with anything but existential threats to the United States proper. What about threats to other countries who are allies, such as the Philippines. The one person notes that they, they believe the Philippines are at risk from the Chinese right now. Uh, Israel, which we know is probably at risk, um, and um, Ukraine, and so on and so forth. Do we just forget about them and say, well, they're on their own? No, I explicitly said no. I, I, I know people have a marvelous ability not to hear what you say. I said I want to... <laughs> I want to send weapons to Ukraine. That's not ignoring them. But I would say this. And by the way, I, we have been very supportive of Israel, as hard as Netanyahu is making that by his irresponsible behavior. But you've got to make it clear you don't punish the country because he's the prime minister. And I hope maybe soon he won't be. But um, the, uh, Israel is not asking for American military support and in, in, intervention. Yes, I want to. Well, I, as I said, again, there are rare cases, clear-cut cases, where I'm prepared to send the troops in. I'll be honest. If the Chinese were to threaten to invade Taiwan, which has become a very democratic, functioning society, I would be willing to go to their defense. But there is a prerequisite there. 
It does not make sense to go into a country where the problems are internally, are essentially internal. Um, and in other cases, we should be encouraging some of our allies to do more on their own. Uh, I, Japan and South Korea are both worried about China. So they spend that time fighting with each other about their history. I am prepared to say to them, look guys, you gotta get over it. I don't know who did what to whom, but the point is that you have together a potential to resist China. We allow everybody else not to do much on their own. Um, so I am prepared, as I said, to help out particular allies that are menaced by an invasion. But in other cases, and I would reiterate this, I don't know anyone who's argued that we should be using military force in Ukraine, that we should be sending in, uh, sending in, in troops. And by the way, if there is a need to send, in, to, to, to send some troops in to help the other countries that are menaced, Poland, the Baltic states, where are the Europeans? Why do we allow the Europeans to do virtually nothing on their own? They are as wealthy as we are, and they're right there. And why is it America's responsibility to do what has to be done and, and the Europeans get off the hook so that the Europeans enjoy a level of social service, of health care, and of other benefits far above what working Americans get because we're subsidizing that. You know, we, we, are, we are subsidizing that by our military budget taking care of them. Now, if they really need our help, that's, that's one thing. So, no, I'm willing to work with the allies. Uh, but again, I would stress the, the cases for us actually sending the military in there are very small. But if there were, we, we, we have the ability to do it. I'm not talking about being weaker than China. I think we have a margin of error over what we need. So have you gone through the military budget, and can you say you talked about 20%? Can you identify 20% of the budget? You said also that government waste was marbled, not just sort of at the margins. So is it really possible to get that much out of the military budget? Do people who analyze the military budget say that's possible? Yes, because what I'm talking about is not doing what we are now doing more efficiently. I'm talking about doing substantially less. I'm talking about withdrawing permanent stationing of troops in Western Europe. And let the Europeans build up a force if they need one. If there's going to be an ex uh, a small force in Ukraine, I'd, I'd have you know, some American participation, but not on an, an active basis. We now, example, we're, we're looking for more. The, uh, we have an Africa command. I, I do not understand who it is we are commanding and, and, and to do what. Um, but there was a great article in the New York Times a while ago, I mean to incorporate this in a piece I would write, quoting the military people in the Africa Command as saying, about a year ago, one of the good things, one, one, now that we are no longer going to be sending as many troops into Iraq and Afghanistan, this frees up the military, and the army is now looking at ways that they can use some of that capacity in Africa. Well, obviously, these were not high-priority problems that we probably would have been uh, when dealing with them. Um, the answer is yes, um, if you talk about pulling the troops back. You stop it. It can't be done right away. You basically slow down the development of new weapons. We already have this enormous technological superiority over everybody else. You abandon uh, the intercontinental ballistic missile system. You rely on airplanes and armed nuclear submarines, nuclear submarines armed with MIRV missiles. Each missile fires different targeted warheads. I, don't th I, I think you, could, you save a lot of money uh, on that. You also stop the interventions. The budget for uh, the Pentagon has this interesting thing. That, I don't know when it gets started. Um, the Pentagon has two budgets. 
They have the regular budget, and then when they go to war, they get an extra budget for going to war. It's kind of like having a lawyer on retainer. He goes to court, you pay him more. Um, and the, the overseas contingency operations, I think it's called. Um, the president has asked, I believe, for $51 billion for that. That's mainly to fight wars in the Middle East over the next, uh, over the next fiscal year. And then a $35 billion increase in the rest of the budget. And so, uh, in fact, if you look, if we had not gone to war in Iraq, we'd have saved a trillion dollars. And the war in Iraq was done, I believe, in pursuit of this notion that it was America's mission to lead the world and particularly to provide order. That, that Saddam Hussein was a disorderly factor and we had to get rid of him and that would calm everybody else down. So yeah, I, I, I think 100 billion is, is conservative. How do you react to the notion that, uh, well, the fact that in fact the world is, uh, seems like a pretty good place by and large and we have trade lanes open and lots of things happening in the world, that just proves that our military budget's doing a good job because it's restraining people from acting badly. There's a story about a man walking around Central Park with a big stick. And somebody says, well, what are you doing with that stick? This is my elephant stick, and it keeps elephants away. And people said, but there's no elephants here. Aha, my stick worked. Um, that's an argument you can't defeat. The answer is you can do some analysis. And uh, the fact is that there is no plausible threat to the shipping lines. I mean, who is going to shut them down? Now, again, I want to be very clear. I am not talking about disarmament. I am not talking about America being anything other than by far the strongest nation in the world. If we were spending 80% of what we were now spending, we would still have a greater military power than any potential combination of enemies. And I again would throw back to the people who tell me, no, all the problem is that we haven't done enough. Or people who said, we made this mistake after every war, and you're trying to make it again, of downsizing just because there is no pending threat. Tell me an example in the recent history where we failed to achieve an objective because we did not have as a nation sufficient military force. There are cases where military force could not be used effectively for a whole lot of reasons. I don't think it's a lack of military force. Now, we did have this problem, I do agree with this. George Bush made this terrible mistake with regard to Afghanistan and Iraq. And I think the effort in Afghanistan did suffer because he was fighting the two wars at the same time. And he should not, if he had not gone into Iraq, I think we could have been better off uh, in, in, in Afghanistan, although I'm not sure. But even there, um, what was the military solution to the fact that Karzai turned out to be way tolerant of corruption? Or that Shia and Sunni would rather hate each other than run their country? All the, all the military power in the world can't resolve that. So I, I, that, that's, I think, the lack of power. But the answer is, uh, I am talking about, A, still having enough to deal with all these threats, and B, uh, people have to show me, I think some of these threats are purely invented. The shipping lanes is one of my favorites. So let's suppose we decide we want to cut the military budget by 20%, you and me. And uh, how do we get that to happen? And let me just mention some things. First, we're already engaged in a bunch of nation-building more or less exercises. We've come back a little bit from some of them, but we're still engaged to some extent. So that's still out there. How do we get out of that? How do we deal with the fact that we seem to drift again and again and again into wars? Uh, Vietnam War when I was younger, but then the Iraq War, the Afghanistan War, and so on, and maybe now something uh, with uh, ISIS and, and Syria and so forth. Um, and we have constant comments about how other nations are terrorists and worrisome countries that we have to deal with, and on and on and on. And then finally, the fact 
that almost every state in the union, in fact, every state in the union receives lots of benefits from military spending. So it's really hard to say to them, you're not going to get your military money anymore. Couple it's things. a lot of things, but yeah, it but seems first like of all, a lot of forces. Yeah, but they're, they're different things. You say we drift into war. We don't drift into war. We decided as a society to go to war. Um, I, uh, let me begin by saying that President Obama, we're, we're making progress. It's not as bad as it was. Um, I've worked in presidential elections and politics a long time. Until Barack Obama, including John Kerry, Al Gore, Bill Clinton, Democratic candidates were told, this was with communism was still the big threat, that you better not look like you're soft on the military, that it was a prerequisite that you show how good you were uh, on, on military stuff. That's why Michael Dukakis, a very able guy, opened himself to ridicule by that silly picture in a helmet in a tank, because he was told you've got to really show how tough you are. Obama is the first time the Democrats won and then he got reelected by being explicitly less interested in the military than his opponent, even with wars going on. Now, I, and he has followed up by withdrawal. Not enough. And I hope he can withstand the pressure to get back into it. But there is no sign that the public is pushing for that. So that's on the general issue. The more specific issue, the pork issue, yes, that's a problem. So I say two things about it. First of all, there is no, Germany doesn't have a vote in the Congress. So pulling the troops out of Western Europe, you don't want it about Pulling the troops out of uh, Georgia is harder, but you can withdraw the overseas uh, activity. Secondly, I agree, you can't cut off existing weapons production. It's very hard. But uh, it is a lot easier, every politician understands this, to not do something in the first place than to start it and take it away from people. You begin to cut back on the weapons. Now, it's hard to get Congress to cut back on weapons, and the Pentagon has been forced to do things they didn't want to do in that regard, but you stop asking for things. A president who got to office determined to reduce military spending in ways that were sensitive to the near-term impacts, but counted on attrition and on withdrawal in some other areas, would be able to do a great deal. And you gave the best argument for that in your question about, well, we drift into war. Um, you know, this is business. Well, look, we, we keep going to war and we're, spe we're spending all this money. How do we stop it? I got to give another old joke. The man who goes to the doctor and says, doctor, it hurts when I go like this. And the doctor says, don't go like this. Um, don't go to war. Don't drift into war. That's why I talk about leadership. Why did we go to war in Iraq? It is now clear it had nothing to do with weapons of mass destruction. It had nothing to do with Osama bin Laden and the terrorists attacking us. Saddam Hussein was a terrible man. He was not a base for terrorists. The Iraq war had nothing to do with terrorism. People in power, Cheney and others, persuaded the president that this was an opportunity to do what they thought was necessary, to reassert American power. This was the platform for reasserting American leadership in the world. These were people who were worried that under Presidents Bush Sr. and Clinton, we were downgrading, that we were losing that ability. And the answer is, and I think the American people are ready for this, even now, even with the butchers of, of ISIS burning people alive, etc., there is no great, I think the president, if the president holds to saying, I'm not sending ground troops back into Iraq and Afghanistan, that he will be pop popularly supported. And I think the, the Republicans understand that, which is why he sent in a resolution asking to be authorized to do things. And I will predict, they'll never vote on it because they don't want to give him the limited, they don't want to adopt the limits he wants of no ground troops, but they're afraid to say publicly. So not going into these kind of wars alone would, would save an enormous amount of money. So 
Why are entitlements off base? Uh, so for you talked about nation building. I am in favor of trying to help nations build themselves. I see no evidence that nation building through the military is going to work unless we are talking about rebuilding a nation. It is fascinating. There is one successful example of the military helping build a stable democratic society. Ironically, it is Douglas MacArthur in Japan after World War II who was pro-union. He was for everything in Japan that he wasn't for in America. Uh, and it worked. But where you are talking about Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, we cannot, yes, we can try to help build these nations, but not with the military. The military is good at shooting people. They're not good at, at, at structuring elections. That's not what they're good at. That's not what they should be used for. So uh, to the extent that we continue to do nation building, we should do that in a civilian way. Trying to do it with the military is A, inefficient, and B, very expensive. So getting back to entitlements, this question actually asks, Kevin Spacey is trying to solve the same revenue problem, but he aims at entitlements. For those who don't know, this is the House of Cards, I think episode two of the current season, where he... <laughs> talks about cutting entitlements, I think, by $200 billion so that he can have a jobs program. Why not entitlements? I mean, there are things you could do. Other, you, you talked about cost of living increases, but why not have a tax that says that if you make uh, uh, already from other sources over 50000 a year that you don't get any Social Security? Basically, well, it's all bad. taxed back. Yeah. First of all, we have done some of that. We, did, we do tax Social Security benefits now. I would increase that. Um, but the proposals that you're getting, by the way, are not to increase taxes, but to cut benefits uh, for, for people low level. Let me start with Social Security. And I, I agree, we so should... Aren't off limits. You, you think there are things we could do there to make them fairer and better, like maybe have... Right, certain... you know, not remotely in dollars compared to the military, uh, because in the military, we, we wasted money in Iraq. Even with the entitlements, we're not wasting that money. We have already moved that way. The uh, president's health care plan included a significant tax for people making more than, I don't know, was it 500000 on Medicare uh, there's a th a, to, to fund the, the uh, Affordable Care Act. And Social Security, you do start paying a tax if you're, getting, if you're making more than $25,000 a year. Yes, I would raise that tax. I agree with that. And I would raise the level at which the low income is taxed for Social Security. But I would not cut back on Medicare benefits or Social Security benefits for the great majority uh, of people. Those work very well. I do have to say one other thing. Um, I'm, again, as I said, a big supporter of the First Amendment. If I wasn't, I would drive House of Cards off the air. It is, <laughs> let me tell you, it is awful. It is the most inaccurate, distorted misrepresentation of reality. And the problem is that people who don't know any better, but the problem is that people don't know any better watch it. And it, it contributes to the citizens, and it contributes to people. The American ambassador to a country in the Middle East, trying to get the president of that country, a good friend of mine, told me this a couple of months ago, trying to get the president of that country to behave better towards his opposition, was told, who are you to preach to me? I watch House of Cards. And <laughs> a lot of people who don't know anybody, are you reading about it? Oh, this is realistic. This is the way... This is the way it really works. No, it is not remotely the way it really works, and it fosters this terrible misunderstanding and cynicism. Sophisticated people may know different, but this is what they tout, and you listen to people, you read uh, things, people, oh boy, I'm really getting the inside story from House of Cards. And I thought it was realism that was really the way it actually worked. 
please don't make the mistake of thinking you're the average viewer. That's a terrible error. Okay. The okay. average viewer, unfortunately, a lot of people who don't know anything else, who aren't political scientists, right. tend to believe that as a realistic representation, and it's very negative in its impact. How likely do you think it is that in the next 30 years that we actually would see a cut in the military budget, given all the factors we've talked about that make it hard to do? I mean, where's, where's the fulcrum from which a movement's going to get going on this topic? Totally there. Um, I, I, I believe that the Middle Eastern thing is starting to wind down. I think Obama's going to be successful in resisting it. You're seeing it in the Republican Party. You're seeing it in Rand Paul and in the Tea Party. There, there was a, the one area that... One of the interesting things to me about many of the conservatives, not the Tea Party people, but some of them, is that they are enormously skeptical of the ability of the American government to accomplish anything complicated within the United States. But they believe it can go do the most extraordinary complicated things in Iraq and elsewhere and achieve a degree of social change that they don't think we could, we could do here. But that's gone, run into real resistance um, on, on the right. Ron Paul was a, uh, never taken seriously by the Republicans. Rand Paul is. I don't think he'll be the nominee. I wish he would because he'd be easy to beat. But, but the, the, there's a base there, and, and, and they're worried. Secondly, and here's the example, we got sequestration, which put limits on both the military and domestic spending. People said, oh, it'll never work. People who believe in an increased military were sure that they could break the limits on the military, and they were sure that they would offer legislation to exempt the military from sequestration. They have failed. It turns out that uh, the, 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 there is an unwillingness to do more and to free the con from, from that constraint. And what will happen is I believe it will become clearer and clearer that the military budget eats everybody else's lunch. And, that, uh, and, and, there is a, uh, and if it gets to the point, people talk about cutting back on Social Security and Medicare. Tax increase for Social Security, one thing. But cutting back on the cost of living, which is what's on the table, cutting back on Medicare benefits, the day that becomes a realistic proposal, I think you will have the basis for the, oh, no, let's, let's bring the troops home from Western Europe. Uh, why are we supporting the National Health Service in Britain and, and, and uh, uh, helping them not do nearly as much as they should in the military? I think that's already happening. Uh, the pro-defense people are already constrained. And the fact is that Obama is withdrawing. I hope he will continue. He is resisting successfully the pressure to send troops back into Iraq, to send troops back into Afghanistan, and maybe to send troops into Syria. And I believe you're going to see the Republicans understand that trying to push that is, is politically unpopular. So I, I think the American people, uh, what happened is that Iraq backfired on them. And it, Iraq has become something like Vietnam. The Islamic State gave them a temporary boost, but I don't think that's going to last. We've been talking about the military as protecting the security of the United States and the well-being of the United States. Tell me about Dodd-Frank. How do you think of that as protecting the security and well-being of the United States? Well, I never argued it for security. For well-being, Dodd-Frank is, unlike other things, it does not confer, well, it does confer benefits in one area. The Independent Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh, has already saved consumers a lot of money. The uh, Pew Charitable Trust uh, does good studies. They say that the credit card bill that we passed to reform credit card practices, as administered by them, saves the consumers billions of dollars a year. But mostly what, uh, what the financial reform bill does is, is prophylactic. It, it helps America by preventing disaster. 
It, it helps America, but I, the bill makes it very much less likely. I call that the security of the United States, by the way. Well, I think you should have a. Uh, I, I talk about disasters like. Yeah, but it's, I think there's a difference between a disaster caused from the outside and internal. I, my own semantic preference. People, I like each word to mean as little as possible, <laughs> literally, and I have a different phenom, a different word for every phenomenon because you get arguments. People, I, oh, this is national security. Well. That, that imports views of, of uh, political views that don't belong there. The purpose of this is to prevent the financial system from having another crisis and inflicting economic harm. I, I, mean, I guess I would say that. It, it, it deals with our economic well-being, our economic security, who want, but if you throw in economic. And I think it is, it is already working to do that. It makes it much less likely that we'll have a crisis. Okay, briefly, every peri- periodically in America, Things change in the private sector, and the public sector has to catch up. And if the public sector is too late in catching up, disaster. The public sector waited too long to pass legislation to regulate the stock market, which was a relatively new phenomenon in the 20th century, as large national enterprises were there. And that contributed to the Depression. In the 30s, part of the New Deal was creating this network of regulation, and it worked very well for 50 years. And then in the 80s, New phenomenon came in, brought in by liquidity from outside, by information technology, securitization, etc., and it caused a crisis. We have essentially done in this last couple of years what the Roosevelt administration did during the New Deal. We created new rules for the new forms of economic activity that will constrain it and will prevent, I believe, another crisis for a while. If we do not, 30 or 40 years from now, there will be changes and there will be a need to update the regulations. Nobody now knows you know, exactly how that will be. But I do believe that the, the financial reform bill has substantially reduced the threat. And by the way, we have some evidence of that. One of the arguments we were told was we were going to be interfering with the financial sector. We were going to be interfering with all this. The Dow Jones Industrial Average in March, when we began work on the bill, what did we have the, was 6,500. It has nearly tripled in the years since then. So uh, I, I take that as proof that at least we didn't do any harm. So final question. Uh, it, it's been a lot of fun watching you as a member of Congress and on the media and television and so forth. Did you have fun? Was it fun? It was fun in the, in the most profound sense. Day to day, it was often stressful. Some of it was fun. I, I'm good at debating. I, I enjoyed that. Um, I never liked a very important part of the job. Uh, part of what you do as a member of Congress, you're in the grief business. That is, you sit there and people come to you and say, oh, my mother is having such trouble with Medicare. Oh, my son is so miserable in the Army. Oh, they're not paying my small business. Oh, we have this terrible dump and nobody will clean it up. So you sit there and you resolve people's problems. And I never enjoyed that, but I did it because the better I did that, the more freedom I had to vote the way I wanted because that was a way to get some political support. So the basic, but, but the most fun was that I felt I was doing things that were important for the, for the, to advance the values that I cared about. So I very much, on the day-to-day basis, it was not fun. It was uh, enjoyable in the deeper sense because it gave me a sense that I was using my time well. Uh, But I don't miss it in the slightest. (laughs) Thanks. This lecture and discussion will soon be available in the Goldman School of Public Policy's uh, TV, UCTV. Go to uctv.tv and look for our channel on the homepage, and you can see it all again. And other great stuff as well. Thank you.